Thanks for joining us on Margins, where we have conversations with change agents. I'm Dr. Christopher Witt. We're joined by my friend and colleague in the National Conference of Black Political Scientists, Dr. Melanie Price. Dr. Price is an associate professor in Africana Studies at Rutgers University and the author of the exciting book, The Race Whisperer, Barack Obama and the Political Uses of Race. So great to have you here, Melanie. And I really want to dive into some of the, the big questions that you start to have a lot of us as readers really open our minds to in the race whisperer in terms of taking a look at things that were said and done or not said or not done uh, during the Obama presidency mm -hmm. that really revolved around race. But a lot of times we may have not even paid attention to it. And, and some people who are, are the big Obama fans mm -hmm. may look at some of those questions or, or the way you focus on it as almost a buzzkill. Right. Whereas people who maybe are the biggest Obama detractors may look at it as, why does everything have to be about race? But right. with those, those bigger questions... Um, you know, what, what's your motivation there? And, and what are some of the bigger ones that you've got the, the biggest responses from? So my advisor when I was in grad school, who was a professor of political science and African-American studies, Nick Nelson, used to say all the time, but what does this have to do with, with black progress? And so the question that I'm constantly asking myself is, what is the impact of on this discussion, on this conversation, on black empowerment, particularly around black politicians? Because part of the charge that they take on is that they are representatives of the African-American community. So when I'm watching black politicians all the time, I'm asking the questions, both what motivates them, but also what is, what is the end result of this? What is the end result of you saying a thing on black people. And so Barack Obama was no different because he was the biggest and brightest black politician in the world orbit, really. And so the question is, what was he saying and how, what was the impact of it on black people, black politics? So basically, every time he talked, that was the guiding question. But I also have to be clear that no politicians get a pass with me. I'm a political scientist by training. So when I hear political when I hear political people speak, I am both listening as an ordinary citizen. So there were moments during, during the Obama administration and his campaign where I was like, oh, my God, that's so amazing. I'm so excited about that. I cry like everybody else in these really pivotal moments where he was breaking all these barriers. But I also at some point had to sober up and take, you know, a back seat and say, oh, yeah, but. How he said that might be problematic later on. I see how he was able to attract non-black voters, but was some of it done at the expense of black people and the issues that are important to black communities? It, it kind of comes as almost the, this double-edged sword right. that you have this prominent leader mm -hmm. who is a black man. Right. And I, I, mean, I feel where you're coming from with that in terms of him saying all types of amazing things, you right. know, leading various initiatives. But at the same time, you do have to take that step back and think about the fact that he is the leader of the free world, that he is the figurehead of this institution of the presidency right. that has been occupied by so many people before him and will be occupied by so many people after him that his words ended up having a different type of weight and a different type of direction than if he was simply a prominent 
black man, that that he's also having that power of the presidency, that sometimes that weight could end up, as you said, later, maybe even crushing, you know, uh, certain dreams and aspirations or, or people within the black community. But also there are times where, at least from my perspective, and it, it seems like uh, you would agree that he also didn't fully recognize or utilize the power that he had in the time that he was president Mm -hmm. to advocate for certain things that he's not the president of black America, but you're still the president of the United States and certain things could be done. What are, what are some things that maybe, you know, he, he kind of tried to walk that fine line and maybe didn't do as well as you wanted him to. Well, I'm a graduate of of historically black college. I would have liked historically black colleges to have improved greatly under an Obama administration. Um, Historically, black colleges serve a purpose. They exist because black students were not allowed to attend predominantly white institutions, but they continue to exist because they have a long history of empowering black communities. To this day, most of our black science graduates graduate from historically black colleges. Many of our black teachers graduate from black colleges. People who go on to medical school graduate from those colleges. And I think there could have been a lot he could have done to sort of funnel money in that direction, to work on the idea of Pell Grants, to work on um, student debt and those kinds of things, which can be seen as universal issues, but can have a profound impact on black students in the same way that he made a similar argument about the Affordable Care Act. I think the thing that everybody thought he would have been better able to do was to really address issues of racism and racial inequality. He was a black president. People seemed open to him. And they thought the openness to him as a black president meant that you could have more conversations about race. But it turns out that that was the exact opposite. His presence as a black president actually made people think, okay, that's enough. We've done the thing that is most important. And now we don't have to talk about race as much anymore. And so now we have people having discussions about being in a post-racial moment. Electing the first black president is a sign that we don't have to worry about race anymore. When the exact opposite thing happens during his administration, where race and racism and racial division becomes more important than it has probably since the civil rights movement. I mean, we ended up having... So many concrete things happened that really illustrated the divisions that we have in race, the disparities. I mean, when we see the United States try to claw its way out of the Great Recession, we saw more than 50 percent of black wealth was lost. We saw so many public sector jobs that uh, were so good uh, to the black community in terms of being ladders to people moving into the middle class and and homes lost and so many different things that are real right. that we can quantify. That's not simply a feeling. Right. We can look at those numbers and that happened during that time and it really shows that when we talk about racial disparities, it really is something that is generational. That isn't something that's simply in the moment. Right. It's something that's been built up over time. And we end up having people saying we're post-racial. It's like, you you can't snap your fingers. Right. (laughs) Part of the thing that's interesting about that is that as he comes into the White House, he's coming into the White House. Part of it is because voters are so frustrated by the people who are in power 
And so he actually runs at a pivotal moment that it doesn't even appear to be as pivotal when he first starts. And that is with the housing crisis, with all these things that emerge. I don't know if you remember when John McCain left the campaign trail to go fix the economy. And he says in that moment that it's important for presidents to be able to do more than one thing at a time. So I'm going to work on this and continue to campaign. And so in these moments, these things were not his fault, but certainly they happened under his watch. They were all already sort of in place coming in 2006, 2007. And so trying to figure out how to recuperate some of the losses of the black middle class is going to be a challenge for the black community going forward. We know that blacks had the majority of their wealth in their houses. When their houses lost value, they lost a lot of their weight. We know that the way that many black people came into the middle class is working for municipalities, working for states, and working for places like the post office. And those kinds of jobs are dwindling. And so part of the thing that is going to be key for African-American empowerment is bigger government. Right. Bigger government helps black people in multiple ways. Part of it is through employment, but also is bigger government does more monitoring, monitoring of racial inequality. It does more with public schools. It does more with all of these things. And the real tragedy is that under our President Trump, it's very unlikely that we will see any of these losses recovered in the near future. It seems like. If President Obama Mm -hmm. would have been able to, during his presidency, Mm -hmm. articulate the roots of some of these inequities, articulate them more from an economic standpoint, Mm -hmm. more from, hey, we have a certain number of Americans through various historical factors who are at this disadvantage and and really look through the numbers. Even if you look at something like historically black colleges Mm -hmm. where people might say, oh, well, their their, uh, graduates aren't giving back as much as their white counterparts. Well, if you don't have an understanding of the racial wealth gap and the fact that black wealth has been under attack much more than that of of white wealth, then really you can't understand why maybe the government would need to step in. And if it feels like if those things have been articulated just a little bit better during the Obama years, even if it's not specifically from Obama, but via his presidency, right. it may make it a little bit harder for President Trump even to be president sure. but, or as president to really roll out so many symbolic mm-hmm. gestures that, that are very empty, like his meeting with the HBCU presidents. Right. Here's the thing that's also interesting about that. At the same time that African-Americans across income classes are losing wealth, poor whites are also doing terribly. And so there's a way in which many of the same programs that would benefit African-Americans would also benefit poor whites and rural whites. And so the sad part of American race, race relations is that oftentimes whites see black gains as losses. And so they go against or they oppose these programs that might be geared towards African-Americans that also would help the poor, right? I mean, if you live in Appalachia and you're white living in Appalachia, the issues that are most important to you aren't that different from most black people. That is, you need better access to health care. You need access to better schools and more school funding. You need jobs. You need infrastructure, That's not that different than what black people are asking for. And so if there was an infrastructure program, if there was a program that helped poor students, if there was a program that if there was a way for every American to get access to health care, poor whites would benefit 
way more than they would under any other kind of Republican-leaning program. Yeah, and we end up seeing so many times that that, that's been one of the, I guess, almost like a work of magic Mm -hmm. over the last um, three to four decades that so many white voters Uh have been convinced in so many different ways to vote against their own interests. Right. If it's their children going off to wars all over the world. Right. If it's health care policies, if it's other social policies that every time that we take a look at these policies, Mm -hmm. we end up seeing that just sheer numbers wise, Mm -hmm. you're seeing more white folks benefiting. And we're seeing places, you know, in Kentucky, Appalachia, as you Mm -hmm. mentioned, where, I mean, you have counties that are over 95% white Mm -hmm. and they're getting some of the highest amounts of these federal expenditures on these various programs, yet they're voting to defund them through the candidates Mm -hmm. who they vote for. And I mean, the only explanation that we can see is is this racial division and and really tapping into almost using dog whistles to tap into these misconceived notions that people have floating around in their heads. Right, right. Which is why the whole Make America Great Again is a dog whistle, right? Because the question is, again, when? Again, for who? Lots of things that Donald Trump talked about when he talked about making America great again were actually things that he claimed to be able to bring back that were largely going to be impossibilities. The idea that you can actually replenish the coal industry, that you can actually bring back an entire industry where most of the mountaintops across Kentucky, across Southern Ohio, across Western Virginia have been blown off already. The idea that you can bring back these kinds of jobs and not figure out a new deal in a new millennium is preposterous. But he plays into those notions. But I often ask my students, If he's talking about the 1950s and the 1960s, what was happening for black people in that moment? Emmett Till, Rosa Parks. It was the beginning of an awakening of black politics across the South. It was a a mass movement that was happening to say that some of the things that we so-called thought were great about America actually turned out not to be great for black people. And so those same programs When you stop segregating schools, you then be able to put the whole pot of money into all the schools, which then helps poor white people. Because many, specifically in the South, lots of rich white people who could afford it took their kids out of school, out of public schools in the 1960s and 70s. And those academies still exist all across the South. And so across the South, you have primarily Black people of all income classes and middle class and poor whites who remain in the public schools. And so funding public schools, however you do it, is going to be better for them. But it's hard to get past those old narratives that giving people of color something takes something away from whites. Because the only real thing that Barack Obama took from whites, if you think about it in 2008, was the face of political power. Most of his advisors were white. Most of his appointees were white. Most of the people in Congress still remained white. Their mayor was still white. Their congressmen remained white. It's just the face of power that changed. And when you tell the rest of America, non-whites, that if the face of American power 
changes race, then what we're going to do is we're going to elect a person who is saying that I am essentially going to try to figure out policies and ways to put people of color back in their place. And their place is outside of the country if they're immigrants. It's in the hoods where people get shot, according to him, going to the grocery store. I'm going to figure out ways to tamp down on all of those people then what does that signal to to other people in this country about what white people believe a future of white a future of all of america looks like it's been a great concern of mine since the, since november it's like what are you telling me about what you want america to look like when you're willing to say yeah he called these mexicans rapists but i believe he can get me my job back because what essentially it seemed like you were saying to me is that your individual the potential of your individual future, because it's like a job that you may never get back. But the idea that he might be able to give you an individual job that helps your individual family is more important than the ways in which he has already told you that he is going to collectively violate the rights of people of color. I mean, basically dehumanizing people. Right, right. Othering then right. making them something other than American, something right. other than human. Right. I mean, we end up seeing these tactics used over and over right. again throughout the history of the United States. Sure. Anytime we see a group that's not part of, you know, the white mainstream power right. structure right. start to make any gains, then there are various ways to figure out how to say, yeah, but. They're not exactly American. If we go all the way back to the early 20th century, when you have Japanese Americans, those Zawa case, where he's trying to make the case that, oh, yes, you know, I'm fully an American. You have people from India and other parts of the world. They're all coming in and they're trying to get that first class citizenship. But they're repeatedly told you're other than you're different than. Mm -hmm. And we see the rise of Donald Trump really being doing that to a specific person saying that Barack Obama, is he really American? He's other than and all of those things. And now we see that playing out in terms of, well, the people who are in these various detention camps, Mm -hmm. they're not people who happen to be in a state of being detained, they're illegals. Right. The people within black black communities who are dealing with various issues that are very serious, mm-hmm. they're basically looked at as everybody's a criminal, no matter what you're doing, you know, or you're you're not exactly American, all of those things. And we see it it becomes easier and easier for people to buy into some of these um Ways in which they want to say, well, like you said, a black gain is going to equal a white loss or a people of color gain is a white loss because they're saying, well, wait a minute, they're they're nowhere like us. So anything that they get, that's just out of this world. Why should they get anything? But people don't really realize that these same tactics are being used in various ways for so many different people. This is sort of taking us in another direction. But this is also why within the African-American community, I challenge things like transphobia, Islamophobia, um, uh, heterosexism. I I challenge misogyny. I challenge those things because the thing is we cannot ask people to have a high level of racial empathy around the ways in which black people and other people of color are mistreated on, on the basis of race and then not look at the ways that other groups who are also black, right? So think about challenges to Islamophobia, a large percentage of Muslims in America are black Americans. 
In Philadelphia, where I live, I think it's 25 to 30% of the black population is Muslim. And so if there is a Muslim ban, if there is Muslim discrimination, then black people are going to be a part of that as well. We also have trans folk. We also are women. We also have people who are gay and lesbian. We also have people who are immigrants. And so we have to also be clear that when people are challenging democracy or trying to be more uh, discriminatory, about who gets to be citizens in this democracy, we are not untouched by that process. When you say we don't want more immigrants, you also are thinking about our African brothers, our brothers from the West Indies, our brothers and sisters from Latin America. Those are people who are also immigrants as well. Those are people who are also potentially Muslim as well. Those are the people who are trans. And also it ignores the fact about the ways in which, for instance, black women are overwhelmingly more likely to be murdered by an intimate partner. And so there are all these issues that we have to think Think about in terms of black issues that are much broader than just racial discrimination. And the way in which we can best challenge Trump is when we challenge him on all those fronts, not that we challenge him on race and then go back to our churches and be homophobic or transphobic or talk about Muslims and how you going to hell if you're a Muslim. And I mean, we, we give a, any of us, re- right. regardless of our background, mm-hmm. we give away a big chunk of our humanity right. when we deny the humanity of other people. That's so true. And sometimes within the black community, I think that we sometimes forget the world is watching. Mm-hmm. That there, there's so many different ways that, that we are visible, even though people try to make us invisible mm-hmm. and make our struggles invisible. And a lot of people are waiting for us to be intolerant. Right. A lot of people are waiting for us to not really respect the humanity mm-hmm. of other people because then that gives them an easy out to say, well, why should we respect your humanity? Why should we want you to be in the position to be full-fledged, mm-hmm. first-class citizens, all of those things that we fought for and struggled so much if you're willing to deny that to other people. So we, we do have to be very careful mm-hmm. um, that we respect everybody's humanity and we respect the fact that so many people have so many intersecting identities, as right. you mentioned, mm-hmm. that people wake up in the morning and they don't choose like which hat they want to put on. Today, I'm going to mm-hmm. be a man. Tomorrow, I'll be black. The right. next day, I'll be trans, Muslim, whatever right. it's going to be. No, you are who you are every day, all day. And the thing is, bigots count on us not thinking in these more nuanced ways. They count on us saying, yes, let's attack Muslims or immigrants and not thinking about the ways in which we are are connected to Muslims and immigrants, not because we are them, but because we are human beings and we understand the ways in which human beings have a right not to be racially profiled, have a right right not to be religiously profiled. I mean, the thing I love most when I'm teaching the civil rights movement, and particularly when I'm teaching anything about Martin Luther King, is to talk about the ways in which King His end goal was integration. His end goal was racial equality. His end goal was racial integration. Those were his end goals. But he was also very clear that how you got to that end was as important as getting there. And he didn't want to end up in a place where we thought we had racial equality, but we got there by being as racist or as discriminatory as the people who we were challenging. He didn't want us in the end to get to the goal that we wanted and look like the people who 
we were fighting against. And that's the thing that I always try to remember about myself is what is your end goal, but also how are you getting to that end goal? So if you get to be a success, but if you got to that success by stepping on absolutely everybody and everything that you came across, then how are you better than people who we challenge? And that's the question that I'm always asking. I mean, so many times we we have to have a grasp on history. Mm -hmm. We have to have a grasp on what is happening around us. I mean, when we were talking about uh, what Barack Obama came into Mm -hmm. as president of the United States, I mean, one thing that I always think of is that it followed, the country followed a very similar model Mm -hmm. as what we saw with some of the first black mayors in the United States Mm -hmm. of America, where these these black mayors in these major cities that people finally, you see the population shift, you see industry leave the cities, Mm -hmm. you see everybody say, well, we've tried everything else. Let's give this black mayor a shot. And then when you start to have black leadership in some of these major metropolitan cities, the issues that really weren't their fault, that were things that were building for generations, are Mm -hmm. all blamed on, well, now that the black people are in charge, look at what's wrong, look at the issues. And there wasn't a lot of focus on any positives. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of parallels with Barack Obama taking over. Many, many, many parallels. But I'm not sure if Barack Obama, it doesn't seem like he appeared to really see himself in that in that type of realm, like he really didn't see that that structure was in place, at least from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. And I think that if somebody on that level maybe misses that, that we have to be very careful as average people because we can certainly miss right. those cues. Part of that, I think, is about the kinds of advisors you surround yourself with. I think one of the real things that was missing from the Obama administration was enough voices of people who were both alive and active in politics during the civil rights movement. If you had had more people from the civil rights generation who were involved in his uh, administration. So he had really high level African-Americans, but many of them were like people like Valerie Jarrett, who were not. Um, necessarily political people who had been involved in black politics nationwide, right? So what would the whole Shirley Sherrod thing where she says something that gets misconstrued by Breitbart that actually doesn't get misconstrued, it's actually edited in a way that makes it into a lie about something she never said. Then you have Tom Vilsack, who is the white head of the Department of Agriculture, firing her immediately. But he doesn't know anything about Shirley Sherrod. He doesn't know that he should take a second look because Shirley Sherrod was a part, a key member of the Albany movement, which is one of the most important parts of the civil rights movement, right? But if you had some African Americans, not millennials, not people who you knew in Chicago, but people who had been around the political scene for longer, they would have been able to say, hey, take a step back and let's think about who Shirley Sherrod is. And before we throw her out for something we're not even sure about, we need to think about the history that we're also disrespecting in this moment. And so a lot of it is about the kinds of advisors he chose and who was in the White House with him at the time. I get why he didn't want some of those people. They carry a lot of baggage in a way they have a lot of racial pessimism in the way that he does not have that kind of racial pessimism. So it makes sense that he didn't bring them along, but it also demonstrated some real holes in the kinds of things that he was trying to do and also real holes in the kinds of proposals that could have been made by people who were um, more tied to the African-American community and its grassroots. Even when you, you see a lot of the stories about he had a cadre of scholars, mm-hmm. you know, as we've seen with some other presidents, mm-hmm. but um, various historians and, and other people of that nature. But you never really heard about big connections with 
people who were steeped in black political scientists, right. black political science, or mm-hmm. just exploring some of the issues that sometimes are discussed mm-hmm. so many times in organizations like we belong to, the National mm-hmm. Conference of Black Political Scientists. And it seems like those were those missed opportunities to have some of those people who were at the heart of the movement, people mm-hmm. who were doing the scholarly work, all of those things. And I mean, then shifting into a Trump presidency where you probably don't have people who are doing too much scholarly work on anything. And you have people who label themselves as white nationalists, you know, AKA, you know, prominent racists uh, who are at least close. Mm -hmm. That really does um, have a contrast Mm -hmm. that really, if if we would have had a little bit more roots dug in, in the Obama administration, maybe be harder to make this flip when you get to Trump. Right. I think, I mean, Barack Obama, Being the first anything, I mean, you and I both know this, that when you are the first black person to be in spaces, there's so many things that you have to challenge, potentially. You have to decide on any given day, is this the battle I'm going to take up on this day? And if you are a person who is not prone to necessarily talk about things or see things in a way that calls out racism. If you are a person who prioritizes finding middle ground with everyone, including people who are your avowed political enemies, right? If you are that kind of person, then it's going to change the kinds of arguments that you make as opposed to a person who sees the world in a vastly different way. And the thing that I realized about Barack Obama fairly early on is that he is a racial optimist for good reason, He's a racial optimist because he has a multiracial background and he has lived uh, with his white grandparents who were very kind to him and who were very caring to him. He has racial optimism because all throughout his educational life and professional life, he has been able to go into circles, into social circles and academic circles where there weren't that many black people and be very successful. And in those moments, it changes the nature of how you see dealing with racism. That's what I believe. I don't mean he's never said any any of this, but it's the kind of thing I, I believe having observed him. And I think that there's a way in which if you are a person who is raised in the, in, in, in the inner city, who is raised in all black environments, who is raised um, through in working class black families, who see what it's like to work hard and not get ahead, who see what it's like to graduate from high schools and be in the top of your class in high schools that are underfunded, that are subpar and not st- still not be ready in terms of college preparation. And those kinds of people are going to automatically come to the ways in which they see America and see the ability to work with, say, racial conservatives in a different way. And so Barack Obama was predisposed to try to, you know, um, to make compromises with people in ways that probably I wouldn't be. But also, as the first black president, there was lots of expectations that we had of him. He couldn't meet all of them, but I think I I would like to say that I'd wish he met more. But also the great thing about being Barack Obama is that when you're the president right before Trump, you're going to look like coming up smelling like roses no matter what to people who are thinking people. Because now you see a president who does not seem to think ahead before he actually tweets out threats to nations that we have been embroiled in conflict with for generations. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly see that in the, the long stroke of history mm-hmm. that Barack Obama, what he did for the country right. and even what he ended up doing sometimes purposefully and sometimes simply by physically being there right. uh, in terms of progress for people of color, opening doors mm-hmm. and opening eyes. It certainly is is magnified and it'll be held up because he's followed by Trump. Right. And and you'll see politicians who come after Trump, particularly on the progressive side, who maybe will be pushed Mm -hmm. to embrace more progress and and be more proactive when it comes to issues of race and identity. Because people will have that contrast Mm -hmm. of Obama versus Trump, where maybe if we wouldn't have had this Trump, I mean, we're going to live through this Trump presidency, but if we wouldn't have had him, then maybe Obama and some of the things that we wanted to project onto Obama really wouldn't be magnified and we wouldn't be able to see progress later on. Sure. Because Trump is so polarizing, because Trump is so polarizing, the thing that we know for sure is that there's no neutral ground. I actually heard Erica Edwards, who is a professor um, at UC Irvine, she kept saying in a talk she gave recently about how basically there is no space for people who are fence riders. And in this moment, there is no space for fence riders. You either either believe in or are willing to tolerate a person who is trampling on the rights of American citizens, who believes that Mexican people are racist, who believes that every time black people go walk down their block, they get shot, who believes that it's okay to detain people who have visas, who are, who are legally in this country, but because they are Muslim, you can hold them at the airport for hours and hours and not have contact with their families. People who got in line, who applied for visas, as soon as they get them, you believe you can snatch them back. People who were translators for us in Iraq, in Afghanistan, that those people who worked for us and are now are in mortal danger, that we can just ignore them and leave them in places to die. You either support that person or you don't. And if you support him because you believe him or if you support him because you think the other things he's doing for you are okay, either way, it looks the same to me. Right. And if you support that, then you don't support me. And there's no other way. There's no other president that I would have said that about. I mean, you you most definitely end up seeing people's priorities play out. Right. Which is also why these moderates who keep saying, well, we need to see what's going to happen first. So starting in November, they were like, we need to see. It might not be as bad as we thought. He might switch up. I'm like, nope. The only evidence I have for people I don't know is what they say and do. And if what you say and do seems harmful to the prospects of the future of me and people who look like me, I don't need to wait. There's no waiting to be had, right? What Martin Luther King calls his book, Why We Can't Wait. I think Trump's actions and his words are the reason why we can't wait and see if he actually is just sort of ginning up uh, support among racists so he can get elected and then he might change his spots what was the wait for that? There's no 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 um, indication that he is not going to do the same thing over and over and over again. 
I think that that's a, a wonderful place <laughs> to leave it because it certainly gives us something to think about. Right. Certainly something for listeners to think about in terms of urgency right. and really to pay attention to what's going on. And I want to thank you, Dr. Thank Melanie Thank you so Price. much for having me. This was fun. And we're going to have to have you back to talk about a few more things. That would be great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank Dr. Melanie Price of Rutgers University again for joining us and talking about so many interesting issues uh, of relation to her book, The Race Whisperer, as well as so many other things. Check back in two weeks for yet another episode of Margins where we'll have another great conversation with a change agent. 